0: Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'd like to read the entire chapter for context, and though it is printed in your bulletin that we will look at verses 13 through 17. I'm going to focus on verses 13 and 14. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and as we come to read God's word and hear it preached, would you bow with me asking for God's blessing? O Lord, who are we that we should have any fruition of you? Who are we that we should have you as our God, as our blessedness and reward, that you would make us your treasure by the work, by the shed blood, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who are we that we should have your word and hear it preached to us now? We are poor sinners, but you are a gracious God, and would you dwell with us now, and would you enable us to hear this word afresh, and would you write it upon our hearts by the power of your Spirit, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and grow in awe and wonder at his amazing love. For we ask this in his name, amen. Now would you stand to hear God's word, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved." Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them, in every good work and word." The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I'm grateful in God's providence we saw the sobering account of the man of, of lawlessness last week and that it is fresh in our minds for now. Last week we heard about the rise of the man of lawlessness, or in other words, the Antichrist, who will lead a wide-scale apostasy in Christ's church. Just before Christ's return. And here at verse 13, Paul makes a great transition. Paul turns from the delusion and the destruction that will come upon those who follow after the spirit of the Antichrist, whether now or when he's actually revealed, and he turns to the glory and greatness of God's grace to those who are in Christ by, by faith. It is a stark contrast that divides this chapter into two parts. And as we come to this section, In section beginning with verse 13, we need to keep in mind what Paul has said in the first 12 verses. And it is key to do that because Paul is applying all that he has said thus far to those who are in Christ, saying, in light of these things, in light of the revelation of the man of lawlessness, praise God for his grace to you, people of God, to you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace alone. And because he has been so gracious, stand firm, stand firm in the truth. And the main point Paul is, is driving home here in in this paragraph is that your election for the believer, your election will lead to your glorification. So stand firm in the truth. And this main point, of course, is quite different from what we saw of those who will be deceived by that man of lawlessness when he comes. It is that great difference between those who love the light and those who love the darkness. Between those to whom God sends salvation and those to whom God sends delusion. Between those who love the lies of the Antichrist and those who receive and rest upon Christ. Between those who have been destined for wrath and those who have been destined for glory. And that great difference that great difference that that cuts the entire human race into two two parts and two parts alone, that is determined by the wise and holy will of the one true God, by his will and nothing else. And so we see in this section, simply this, Paul's thanksgiving to God for his saving grace. Look there again at verse 13 making that transition from discussing the man of lawlessness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul really packs in a lot to these two verses, to this one sentence. Election, effectual calling, sanctification, and glorification, all in these two verses. All this to show just a glimpse of the greatness of God's grace to sinners. Sinners who deserve nothing but His righteous wrath and displeasure. And all this comes by way of thanksgiving. In light of what we've seen of the sober, and, and fearful account of what will happen when the man of lawlessness appears. Praise God for his grace to those who are in Jesus Christ. And once again, Paul is giving thanks to God as, he, as he's done a few times in these epistles. Giving thanks to God for his grace to sinners. You recall as he opens his first epistle to the Thessalonians in chapter 1, he said, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And just about the exact same thing as he opened this epistle, Second Thessalonians 1:3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And he repeats that same kind of thanksgiving at this point, saying in so many words, I am so thankful to God for you. I am convinced that God has graciously elected you before the foundation of the, wor- of the world, because you received the word of God in faith, and you are walking in holiness by faith. Again, remember that transition that Paul is making at this point in the chapter, going from the destruction of That will come upon those who follow after the lies of the man of lawlessness, going from that to the glory that will come upon those who have been chosen by God in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. That is great reason to be thankful to God, is it not? It is by grace and by grace alone that those who are in Christ will be kept safe, will be preserved from the lies of the man of lawlessness. And we see more of the reason Paul offers this thanksgiving to God again in verse 13. There he refers to those who are in Christ as brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. It most basically is God's election that keeps God's people from the lies of the man of lawlessness. As Matthew Henry says very helpfully, When we hear of the apostasy of many, it is a matter of great comfort and joy that there is a remnant according to the election of grace which does and shall persevere, and especially we should rejoice if we have reason to hope that we are of that number. And so if you look to the Lord Jesus alone for your salvation, if you take hold of him by faith and have turned from your sin and look to him alone for your salvation, I ask you, why are you saved and not others? Why have you been saved and others have not? Is it because you are better than others? Is it because you are smarter than others that you realized, others didn't, you realize all on your own that it was a wise choice to believe? Is it because God knew He should have you on His team instead of others, that it would behoove God to have you on His side? To all these questions, we must answer no. It is just as the hymn we just sung says. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Election, by God's grace, is not due to what is in us. It is not as we so often hear that God looked down the corridors of time and saw that person will believe or that person is virtuous. I want him in my kingdom. It is nothing like that. Election is due only God's good pleasure. It is as God said to Israel, and as he says it to Israel, he says it to us, his new covenant community today in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. As we see elsewhere in Paul's epistles in Ephesians chapter 1, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? The good pleasure of His will. The reason for God's gracious election lies not in man, but in God alone. So I ask you again, Why are you saved and others aren't? The answer is because God loved me and chose me before the foundation of the world. Well, we could ask further, why did God love you? And we've already seen the answer. He loves me because He loves me. There is no deeper ground than that, no higher reason than that. Why would God love a creature? God has nothing god is in need of nothing outside of himself he is of himself he did not create because he was lonely he did not redeem to have more fellowship with others that he needed in and of himself why would god love a sinful creature because he loves them it is because of this electing love of god that his people are kept safe from the lies of the man of lawlessness this is the the practical import of the doctrine of election as paul brings it out here saying you people of god you who trust in the lord jesus will be kept safe from the lies of the evil one because you've been elect before the foundation of the world and that brings to fulfillment deuteronomy thirty three twelve: the beloved of the lord dwells in safety the high god surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders nothing can get to God's elect because they are elect, because he loves them. We see there in verse 13, in the, in the middle of that verse, you see, you see there in your ESV, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. You may have a, a footnote there, maybe a number by the, by the word firstfruits, and if you look at that note, maybe at the bottom of the page or in a margin, it may read something like, Some manuscripts say, chose you from the beginning. So there are are good manuscripts that say, they record Paul is saying, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And there are other equally good manuscripts that say, God chose you from the beginning to be saved. We should note here that whichever reading you go with, whichever textual variant there is, the doctrine does not change one bit. What Paul is saying is clear either way. I think if I had to choose, I would go with, with that footnote reading. I would go with, God chose you from the beginning to be saved. Because that's the, that's the equivalent of what we see Paul saying in Ephesians 1, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So it is before creation, it is before God chose to create, that he chose us in his Son before the foundation of the world. And we, we see there in the rest of verse 13, Paul goes on to say that God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So God's election before history manifests itself in history. It manifests itself in history by the Spirit's work and by the sinner's reception of the truth by faith. And of course, as we've already seen in these letters, it is sanctification that is the great proof of election. It is as the Shorter Catechism puts it, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. And so it is looking to Jesus, it is growing in His grace, that is the great proof, the great evidence of our election in eternity past. It is as Thomas Watson says very helpfully, without sanctification, we can show no sign of our election. Election is the cause of our salvation. Sanctification is our evidence. Sanctification is the earmark of Christ's elect sheep. How do you know if you're elect? Look to Jesus and look to his saving grace at work in your your heart and life. And all of this is absolutely true. The sanctification is the evidence of our eternal election. But I think Paul is emphasizing something a little different at this point when he emphasizes the sanctification by the Spirit. I think what Paul is getting at here is not primarily that progressive aspect of sanctification. As the catechism puts it, that more and more, dying to sin and living to righteousness. I think what Paul is referring to here is that once and for all break from the lordship of sin in the life of the believer. That irreversible breach from sin's enslaving power that takes place when the sinner believes. It's as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, after he mentions that, that list of sinners who do not inherit the kingdom of God, and then turns, turns to the, the gospel statement there in 1 Corinthians 6.11, But you, such were were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, already completed action. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is the sanctification that takes place, not in the progressive, more and more, everyday, gradual growth throughout the life of the believer. This is the sanctification that takes place one time at the beginning of the believer's life in Christ. It is an irreversible act. It takes place at the beginning of the Christian life. It is the believer's breach, his breaking off from the enslaving power of sin. And it is on that basis, the broken power of sin, is on that basis that we make progress. It is on that basis that we grow in God's grace throughout the entire Christian life. There would be no progress. There would be no way of evidencing that election according to grace before the foundation of of the world if Christ did not break the power of sin and the Spirit did not deliver us from its enslaving power. Sin's enslaving power must first be broken, and it is broken when a sinner is saved. That, I think, is what Paul means here when he mentions the sanctification of the Spirit. So what then is the response of the sinner? It is God who elects. It is the Spirit who sanctifies, delivering the the sinner from from the enslaving power of sin. What is the response of the sinner? See there in the last part of verse 13, that God chose us to be saved through belief in the truth. The people of God, those who are in Christ, are beloved by the Lord Jesus, chosen by God the Father, have been sanctified Completed action have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, but now we see the response of the sinner, belief in the truth. This, this salvation is through and through the work of God, and because it is the work of God, it brings in the response of the, the new creation in Christ, the response of the sinner. It affects a change in the one who is saved. Instead of hatred of the truth, there is instead belief in the truth love of it. God grants a new heart with new desires to take hold of that truth. As Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 puts so beautifully, "'And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules.'" That is why we were able to believe and love the truth. We are given new hearts to receive it. Our heart of stone has been removed and we've been given a new living heart to believe. That leads Paul to, to speak of God's work of effectual calling there in verse 14. There he says, To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Calling there. To this, he called you. This is the work of effectual calling, as we read of it in Shorter Catechism 31. That effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. This is how the redemption that is in Christ is actually applied to sinners. This effectual calling is a sovereign summons of God. God calls to the sinner, come to Christ, and he enables you to answer that call. John Murray illustrates effectual calling in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Think of a court summons you are told that you are required to come appear in court. You have to do so. You have to appear because you've been given the summons. There is penalty if you do not. You have to appear, but you can choose not to do so. You can disobey that summons. You can resist it. If you do disobey the summons, you'll be apprehended against your will, and you will appear in court whether you like it or not. So the court issues a summons, You're authorized to come, you're required to come, but you don't have to if you don't want to. The summons itself cannot bring you to obey it. You cannot answer the summons because the summons has no power to bring about what it commands. The power to bring that about depends on you. Effectual calling is totally different. With effectual calling, God issues that summons. He says, Come to Christ. He calls us out of sin and misery and calls us into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And he affects what he calls. He brings into, he brings into reality what he commands. As 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So with this effectual call, God says, Come to Jesus But who does that effectual call come to? It comes to sinners dead in their trespasses and sins. And a dead person cannot answer any call. But that is what makes the call effectual. God says, come to Christ, and he brings about what he commands, enabling us to take hold of Jesus by the gift of faith. And finally there in verse 14, we see the great conclusion. Again, as, as we saw at the beginning, Paul has packed a lot into these two verses. Up to this point, we've seen the election of God the Father in eternity past. That sanctification by the Spirit, that, I think, irreversible breach with the enslaving power of sin in the life of the believer. and On that basis, the growth in grace, that more and more dying unto sin and living unto righteousness as evidence of God's election. And then we saw the effectual call of the believer into the fellowship of Christ. We who are outside of Christ, united to him by God's effectual call. So Paul's moved us from eternity past to his grace here and now in in our lives. And then he moves us to eternity future. See there again in verse 14, that great purpose, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ obtaining the glory of Jesus Christ. We saw this back in in chapter 1, that at Christ's return, as Paul puts it there, Jesus will be glorified in his saints. We might be able to understand that Jesus would be glorified at his return, but he is glorified in his saints. That Christ's name is glorified in us, and we are glorified in him. That we come to share his glory As he puts it here, we obtain his glory. That is the great future of all who believe in the Lord Jesus now, obtaining the glory of Christ. Well, we should ask ourselves, how can we get this great status, obtaining Christ's glory? Why would we be counted worthy to be with Christ in the age to come? Why would we be counted worthy to hear those blessed words Enter into the joy of your master. The answer is the same as what we've seen all all along. It is all of grace through and through. God's demerited favor. Election of free grace in eternity past. Sanctification of free grace now. And calling of free grace. And all these things must have their great end. They must terminate in the glorification of God's redeemed people. Again, all of free grace. We contribute, not a drop. Christ was glorified in His resurrection from the dead. That was the beginning of His exaltation. And all who are in Christ will be glorified at the resurrection of the dead when He returns. Christ entered into glory as the reward of His perfect obedience. And all who are in Christ will enter glory as the gracious reward of His perfect obedience. What Jesus has by merit, we have by grace. What Jesus has earned, we have received as a free gift. What Jesus deserves, he makes us deserving of it because we are in him by grace through faith. All these things we've seen leading up to this this endpoint, election, sanctification, and calling will lead to glorification. They must terminate in glorification. For as Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8, verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. One must lead to the other. Election must have its full fruition in the glorification of God's people. And if you, if you were picking up on, on how Paul was describing it there in Romans 8, 30, you see that there... Believers, in some sense, already are glorified right now. It is as Richard Gaffin puts it, that believers at the core of their being will never be any more resurrected than they already are. Those who are in Christ by faith are already raised with Christ in the inner man and awaiting the resurrection of the body at Christ's return. So Christ will bring those who are in him to glory. As Paul says in Romans 8, 17, that if we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that being heirs of God is the greatest inheritance, not just of a new heavens and new earth, Not just of a resurrection body, but having God himself, perfect, consummate communion with the triune God in that holy realm, in the resurrection body, forever and ever. And that inheritance is ours because there is a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb. And believer, this is what is true of you because of Jesus, not because of you. This is why we must join Paul in giving thanks to God for his amazing grace to undeserving sinners. Grace from before creation, grace here and now, and grace to come and for all eternity. Just a few points of application, and we of course could go on and on just in these two verses. First of all, again, for the believer, see that your salvation is fully Trinitarian. It is not just the Lord Jesus who saves. It is the triune God who saves. And as Paul has put it just here, and he puts it in in different ways elsewhere, emphasizing the the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. We are beloved by the Lord Jesus. We have been elected of the Father, and we have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Perfect harmony in the being of, of God, and therefore perfect harmony in the work of God in redemption. Each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, at work to bring a multitude of sinners to glory. And secondly, again, for for the believer, see that the triune God has granted you every aspect of your salvation. From eternity past to eternity future and everything in between, God has provided all we need for life and godliness, all we need to make us right with Him both in the accomplishment of redemption in the death and resurrection of Christ and the application of that redemption to us by His Spirit. We lack nothing to make us right with the one true God, the one, the great judge of all men. And there is nothing we lack to take us safely home. And as we close, let let us remember that Paul is not writing here just to inform us about these glorious things. And even if he were to do that, that would be wonderful and, and enough for us. But he's writing all these things in the context of showing us why God's people do not give in to the deception of the man of lawlessness, whether when he returns or mysteriously at, at work, even right now. There, of course, as we saw last week, will be a multitude and a great apostasy that the man of lawlessness will lead in the church when he appears. But those who are in Christ will not follow after him. Why? Why will those who are in Christ be able to withstand the lies and the great apostasy led by the man of lawlessness? Is it because we are better? Is it because we are smarter? Is it because we are more capable than others? Again, not at all. It is only because of what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And aren't you glad that that if possible is in there? The man of lawlessness cannot lead astray the elect because God has chosen them and made them his own before the foundation of the world. And so he will keep us safe from the lies of the evil one. As we close, I want to bring to your attention a section from Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity, a brief paragraph of his on, on perseverance in light of Christ's return. He's answering the question, what, what motives are there to make Christians persevere? He says, you are within a few days' march of heaven. Salvation is near to you. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Christians, it is but a while, and you will have done weeping and praying, and be triumphing. You shall, be, you shall put off your mourning and put on white robes. You shall put off your armor and put on a victorious crown. You who have made a good progress in religion, you are almost ready to commence and take your degree of glory. Now is your salvation nearer than when you began to believe. When a man is almost at the end of a race, will he tire or faint away? Oh, labor to persevere, your salvation is now nearer. You have but a little way to go, and you will set your foot in heaven. Though the way be uphill and full of thorns, yet you have gone the greatest part of your way, and shortly shall rest from your labors. And so, believer, you can persevere by the power of the the Lord Jesus Christ at work in you now. He has made you his own, chosen you from before the foundation of the world, sanctified you by his Spirit, called you by that effectual call, and he will enable you to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns, all of his grace. May God be pleased to add his blessing to the preaching of his word.